Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the My OT Journey podcast. My name is Michael Rock, and today I'm joined by an occupational therapist that, for many of you, needs no introduction. He is a prolific researcher and author of the quintessential text on stroke rehabilitation, editor of Willard Spackman's Occupational Therapy, and an esteemed Eleanor Clark Slagle lecturer. In addition, he has a wealth of charisma and charm that inspires even as it educates. I hope you all join me in welcoming Dr. Glenn Gillen to the podcast. Dr. Gillen, thank you so much for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So the My OT Journey podcast may be a little different than other interviews that you've done. We're really looking to kind of gain a little bit of insight into uh, how you got into OT, what keeps you in OT, and your personal story. Uh, So that being said, do you have any uh, stories before you even went to OT school uh, that kind of prompted your decision to go into occupational therapy? Really good question. I was at um, New York University. And I was a pre-med major like the rest of the university. And I was <laughs> very much dis- disillusioned with the um, curriculum, um, not enjoying it at all. Um, and then my, luckily my advisor, because um, I was kind of lost at that point, um, suggested I do a semester in each of the s- schools. Um education school, um, liberal arts school, et cetera, whatever the case is. And one of the classes that I took was a special education class. And lucky for me, it was a um, field-based class. So we were really in different special education settings um, instead of being in the classroom. And that's where I um, really got attracted to occupational therapy. I was really, um, I was mostly attracted at that point to the technology aspect of OT in terms of wheelchair seating and technology and communication. And I literally walked across the park and went to the OT school and applied. It was, that was not a competitive time for OT and they accepted me right there. <laughs> they said, I said, wheelchairs. And they're like, oh, okay. You're it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, I think that your that story is is similar to a lot of the stories that occupational therapists have. I know personally, um, I went to undergrad as a pre med major as well, um, with an English lit degree, and thought that I wanted to go the medical route too. Um, when you went to uh, undergrad with the uh, pre med track, what uh, were you in any way like? Did you just go pre med because? Uh, when you thought of medicine, that's the image that happened in your mind? Or was there uh, family pressure to move into into medicine? No, no, no. Yeah, no, I think I just wanted to be in a healthy profession. Um, and that was, you know, that's what came to mind. What was your, uh, what was your experience once you got into the program like? So, when I got into the program, um, I've one of the first classes was neuroscience, and I fell in love with the, the brain. Um, and it's so weird that that is my 30-year career ever since has been in neuro. Um, my most of my experience, my clinical experiences in neuro 
my writing's all about neuro. Um, so that was my big draw when I got to OT. Because I think a lot of people went into the OT program not mm. knowing what they wanted to do. I was one of them, but mm. I figured it out. <laughs> and and uh, have you have you always been kind of like that, that once you set your mind? <laughs> Actually, I wanted to OT because I knew you could move around and do lots of things. And I, when I, I was only 18 when I went to OT school, and... Um, I got bored really quickly because so I was like, oh, this is a great profession that I can, you know, pop, you know, pop around and do different things. And I ended up doing the same thing for my whole career, actually. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> now, do you have any uh, professors in mind in that come to your mind when you think of uh, that aha moment? Oh, yeah, I do. I do. Um, Professor Karen Buckley. I'm still in touch with her. I ended up teaching in her class for many years of doing guest lectures after the fact. Um, she's recently retired. And do you think that, uh, because you went on to have um, a career in, in educational OT as well as uh, being a prolific researcher and writer, uh, do you think that your education um, at, the, at the bachelor's, master's levels uh, prompted you to to go into education, or do you think that was more of a a slow growth and blossom? That was a, a growth and blossom. I I used to be a really severe stutterer, so the idea of being in front of a class and teaching them was never on my radar. Um, so what happened was when I was at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center as a clinician. Um, the faculty at Columbia um, always was asking to like for lab assistants and guest lectures and stuff, and that's how I started. Now, as I know that you do have a couple of exciting experiences uh, as far as uh, field work goes, can you tell me a little bit about what it was like working under uh, Mary Riley's occupational behavior frame of reference for your field work? Ah, yeah, when I did my, my uh, mental health field work, yes. Um, that whole that whole field of experience was um, centered around my, uh, Mary Riley's work. Um, and some of the clinicians there had known her personally and professionally. Um, so I just felt like she was like kind of um, in the background when I was working with the patient um, in terms of what would be like, what would Mary do? <laughs> it's so, uh, from a personal standpoint, it's so exciting to hear uh, that you got to have that experience because, uh, as you know, I'm an OT student and that's, uh, you know, we get to read about Mary Riley's uh, frame of reference and read about the history of OT. Um, but it's it's by proxy exciting to hear someone who experienced it and lived through it. Um, do you have any uh, individual just experiences or stories that you can share from that, that experience? Um. This was a closed unit, mental health unit, a lot unit, I should say. Um, but using her philosophy, they were really focused on getting people back into the community. And we did a lot of community reentry. It was also San Diego, so we would we would go to the beach. And I was like, this is the best job I've ever had <laughs> to go to the beach. <laughs> yeah, no, that does sound great. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as far as uh, I, I'm sure that in, in school you, you 
took to the uh, to the program like a fish in water. Um, but are there any uh, challenging experiences that you faced or things you wish you would have known? Uh, I know a lot of students are going to be listening to this podcast, and uh, I'm sure they would love to hear the words of wisdom, the little pearls that you gained from your experiences. Um, I wasn't prepared for the intensity of it, actually. I, you know, I was even, you know, compared to pre-med, I was like, wow, this is a, you know, a, a mind-boggling experience. But it was also like um, using your whole brain. So we'd be in the anatomy lab at 9 o'clock in the morning, and then we'd be doing a craft activity at 12. And I was like, what? I said, I went from aldehyde, and now I'm working with clay. I don't understand what this is. Um, so I think it really... Um, it's important to know what you're buying into in terms of how intense the program is. And again, it was a ba- mine was a bachelor's degree, so you had to get a lot in in a short amount of time. Now, once you, uh, what w- what happened directly after graduation for you? Right after graduation, I had actually done my field work one in physical disabilities and field work two in physical disabilities in the same hospital. It was called Goldwater Hospital. It no longer exists. It was a hospital for um, very involved neuro patients. Well, that's that's the unit I was on, um, and they were, you know, the OT chart for like home books. They had been on program for years because it was so complicated. Um, I ended up getting a job offer um, at that hospital during my field work too, and they held it for me for when I went to San Diego to do my mental health. Mm. And then came back. So I felt I was very lucky. I felt very comfortable knowing the players, knowing the patients, knowing the documentation systems, um, et cetera. That being said, when I got there, we were assigned to units to be like um, the overseer. So it would be a splint, mm. if someone needed a wheelchair. Um, and they said, you are going to be 32 or whatever the unit was. I said, I didn't know we had a T32. I've never been there. It was a pediatric unit. And I, I walked in. I was like, oh, my God. No idea that I was going to be working in pediatrics. And actually, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And it ended up being like a, a, more, a rehab pediatric. It was kids that had spinal cord injuries from playground accidents, kids that were burned in a house fire. Um, but it was an eye opener. That was my first day, and I was like, I, I'm a pediatric therapist all of a sudden. Wow. And that sounds like a, a pretty intense first job. Uh, did you did you feel at all overwhelmed by the caseload that you took on or the severity of the cases? Completely. Completely, because these were people that were not managed correctly. So mm. the stuff that you read in textbooks were not applicable. And it, was, it was always the best case scenario. Um, mm. So luckily... The staff there was very seasoned um, and highly skilled. And I had to rely not only just on what I learned at NYU, but from the, the current um, OTs and PTs on the, on the floors. Wow. Yeah. And and how did you personally deal with the, the burden of care? Uh, I know from the interviews that I've had with other occupational therapists and just in uh, you know, personal experience that burnout is a significant, um, a significant problem in our in our profession, uh, especially because we're dealing with patients like the ones that you dealt with in your first job. How did you How did you balance your personal mental health and uh, the severity of the caseload that you took on? 
It's a great question, and I learned really quickly that if you don't take care of yourself, physically or and mentally, um, you're not going to be able to give care to your patients. Um, luckily, the whole staff is very supportive of each other. I know um, where I do clinical work now, we have um, grief counselors, we have um, staff support groups, and they're really important to participate in. Now, uh, I know that you've been uh, obviously in the profession for um, a good amount of years and you've seen the profession change. Uh, can you give a little snapshot of what the profession was like uh, when you first started in comparison to um, what you see the profession is like now? Is it the same, different? It's different. I think OT has a much higher stature now. I, I find we all spend less time explaining what OT is, that um, many of our clients or their families have had exposure to OT and understand what it is. We've gotten some really good press um, related to OT. So I think that our stature on the team has really risen dramatically in a good way. And if you had to give one piece of advice for someone who would find themselves in a similarly overwhelmed situation as your uh, first job was, what piece of advice I would, would you give them? I would say don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. And whether it be professional counseling, you know, through your therapist, or non-professional through friends, or through staff, but we're all in the same boat. If you, if you don't care you're not going to have that stress. So having that stress is a good thing because that means you really care about your patients. That's a good, that's a good thing to keep in mind too, that the, the stress comes from a good place, not necessarily just, you know, just the negative. Stress, yeah. Now, uh, but we, we, we all know that uh, the, your first job isn't where you ended up and you eventually transitioned into academia. Uh, when did that start happening? Um, how long have I been practicing? Let's see. Probably 11 years in, I started to do, like, guest lectures and adjuncting, um, lab assistance. And then, and that was at Columbia University. And then in 2000, so 19 years ago, I guess it was, um, they needed somebody to fill in for two years. Um Somebody got a grant and was going to be full-time brought out. Um, and I said, I, I'll do it as long as I can keep my seniority at the hospital for when I go back. And that person ended up not coming back. And that's how I got into it. It was by default. It wasn't a, it wasn't a career plan at all. <laughs> it, it just kind of it happened. I, I could, I could understand happened. that. Now, uh, you already said that, that you, you're – personal experience with public speaking was uh, difficult growing up, uh, that you grew up with a stutterer. Uh, how did you build up the confidence to be able to uh, start doing guest lectures and start lecturing courses and uh, kind of build the career that you have now for yourself? Mm, good question. Well, the stutter ended up stopping on its own. I don't even know how that happened, actually, um, or why that happened, but it's a good thing. Um, and I think what was helpful was starting not standing in front of a classroom, but doing like lab assistance when I had a group of 10 people and I was teaching very practical hands-on skills, you know, muscle testing or whatever the case was, um, or transfers. 
And I think that helped build my confidence until it got to like get in front of the class and teach you know, 55 people. <laughs> and how long do you think that took if you had to put a, you know, a time frame on it? To gain confidence? Yeah. It's ongoing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it, took, it took a few years, actually, in terms of not being, you know, not being nervous getting up in front of a group. But it, that took some time, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, but what you note is important, too, that uh, it can be easy to uh, think that when you're when you're sitting for a lecture or sitting for a course uh, that the person in front has it all you know all figured out and they don't have any nerves and uh, they are are confident and poised because that's what they present uh, but there I'm sure there always is you know a little nerves and there's always that little mini pep talk that you have to give to yourself um, correct and if you're not that means you're phoning it in ex- yeah exactly. Yeah, there's got to be some level of, you know, just like adrenaline or whatever the case is. But if you're just like walking into a classroom with the coat on and not, you know, feeling anything, that means you're not really ready to teach. You're not, you know, you need the adrenaline and a little bit of the nerves to do it right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because then it's not a challenge. Then you're just going through the motion. Correct. So I want to speak a little bit about uh, your as you transitioned into academia, um, when did you start feeling like your academic career started picking up steam? Uh, I specifically want, I know that uh, we're going to address a little bit of your Eleanor Clark Slagle lecturer and uh, getting that incredible award. Um, but I want to know a little bit about the process to get there, what that was like for you. In terms of academia? Um well, I think what kind of helped get me to the label and known in the profession was not only was I teaching at Columbia, which is, you know, nobody knows that before the internet. Um, I was doing a tremendous amount of continuing education um, mm. on the road. And I've done probably 250 courses um, and, you know, many times not in great places, you know, like Three Mile Island or whatever. Uh, so I think that's that's what got my name out there, and then also my textbook. I think my my stroke textbook was just lucky. Um, I in 1996 I was at a OT conference, um, and I was looking at the textbooks that were being offered for stroke because that was my you know love, and they were all from physical therapists. I'm like, why is there no OT stroke textbooks? That's ridiculous. So I ended up just being stupid, I mean, I was not stupid, I was naive, and called what was then Mosby, which is the biggest mm-hmm. medical publisher in the world, and mm-hmm. made a cold call saying, I want to write a book on stroke for OTs, and, they said, <laughs> I the book book. and I said, no, I never have, and they, they hired me, and I was like, okay, and I've been <laughs> writing for them ever since, I mean, it was like naive gutsiness, you know. But you know, it's, it's it's sometimes that kind of naivety, you know, will get you through the door. That if you knew exactly what you were getting into or how difficult the process is go- usually is, um, you might not have made that cold call. <laughs> yep, that's true. And uh, and and the book you're referencing, just so you know, it's on the record: is "Stroke Rehabilitation: A Function Based Approach." Correct. Yes, and it's going into its fifth edition now. 
And what was the reception like when that book was published? Obviously, it was it was well received. But uh, as far as you said that before, there wasn't really an occupational based or occupational therapy based book on stroke rehabilitation out there. Uh, how was it received in the OT community? Um, again, this was pre-internet, um, so, you know, you didn't get any feedback, like, on Amazon or, you know, whatever the case is. So the only thing I had to go on was numbers of books purchased, you know, from my um, publisher, and it clearly took off and then became an international book soon after that, which was great. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's, so it's been translated into several languages at this point. And that must be an incredible feeling. Part of the reason why I, I and this may correct me if I'm wrong, part of the reason why you wrote the book was to to get OT out there and, and improve, you know, the rehabilitation of of uh, a patient population that you love. Uh, what does it feel like to have that information out there across the world in so many different languages? Very, very proud. Very proud of that book. Um, I feel like it impact on patient care, which is, has been my whole thing, is how do we help, how do we help our patients do better? Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, that desire uh, to impact patient care carried over into your Eleanor Clark Slegel lecture, uh, A Fork in the Road, An Occupational Hazard. Um, one of the things that really struck out to me reading the uh, lecture uh, was just the your introduction and uh, how storytelling resonates with you and uh, carries through um, the lecture. And in our interview, I kind of want to question, do you think that going and having almost like a a liberal arts beginning to your occupational therapy education kind of helped you structure that lecture? Uh, because it definitely is, is creative. It's uh, it's, it's real. um, It's, feels interdisciplinary. Um, do you think that your early education had an impact on that? I do, actually. Um, I've always been like an avid fiction reader. Um, and I structured this around The Wizard of Oz, actually. Always a favorite movie of mine as a child. Um, and when you get when you do this label, there's no guidance. They don't really ask you for a topic. Um, the week before, you have to send it in to be reviewed. But there's no um, edict to say anything. You can say whatever you want, actually, which is a very stressful situation, actually. But what I did is I went through all the other flavors and I tried to build on top of them because um, it's considered a professional legacy. So putting it into a storytelling context um, really just helped me get my message across. And I would literally carry a notebook with me and write down you know, ideas on the subway when, you know, when something came to mind. And uh, I do encourage people to go and uh, read it. They can find it, uh, you know, on the AOTA website. Uh, but for those uh, who um, are listening to the podcast, uh, can you give just a little uh, blip of what the purpose of your lecture was and the legacy that you wanted to leave for yourself? Oh, yeah. Um, my whole issue was getting back to our roots and doing what we say OTs, even though we weren't. Um, and if you look at, I literally went through every OT journal um, from the beginning of the profession. And it was so clearly OT in the 1940s and 50s. 
in terms of using occupation to influence health. And then the 60s and 70s came around, and OTs were being, um, they were, what's the word, um, insecure, and tried to adopt a more medical model and adopted many approaches that were not from the OT wheelhouse. <clears throat> and it really did, did us a disservice. Uh, some of that continues today, but my hope was like return to home. You know, there's no place like home, and go back to what we always had to do. And now, how much longer was it before uh, you started putting that that theory or that that mission into practice with your choose choosing wisely program? Uh, choosing wisely—that's a good point. That came. I think that's why it was offered that. Well, not offered. Um, it's a volunteer position um, to be the project champion, and I think because of my always my focus, <clears throat> my focus on evidence-based practice, my whole career. Um, that's why I was chosen for that. We've been doing choosing wisely for about three years now, um, and it's been a really what have I? I've always been a volunteer leader for um, AOTA, but this is something that I'm most proud of actually. This reaching such a huge audience because it's sponsored by the American Board of Internal Medicine, um, which is a very powerful um, organization. And AOTA has been amazing in terms of <clears throat> getting the word out there. Hmm. And I love it. I get phone calls and emails all the time from people that are telling me how they implement to choose it wisely. And we started an award this year uh, for someone who has implemented the ideals of choosing wisely. We ended up giving out to two people, actually. And for those who are listening who don't uh, aren't aware of what Choose It Wisely does, um, can you give a brief overview of the purpose of choosing wisely and um, the impact that it can have on practice? Yeah. So choosing wisely is really about empowering our clients patients, and um, giving them permission to question what we are offering them, what anybody's offering them, any physician does in other cases, to make sure that what we're offering, offering them has evidence to support it, to make sure that it's truly free from harm, and three is that it's not duplicative of other <clears throat> services from other clinicians. So it's really about um, empowering clients to engage in a dialogue and not just being a passive recipient of this is what we're going to do today in our team. The question is why? Why this assessment? Why this intervention? The edict is for patients to choose wisely. I know you uh, did give out two awards. Uh, can you give an overview of how that purpose is put into practice? Um, there's been several, um, we have several people that we've been in contact with. with um, one is a program, I think, um, this gentleman who's an OT, Cody, I think he's in Virginia, but he does functional Fridays, um, and he hides all the non-purposeful activities, the pegs and the cones, and really encourages his staff to think out of the box and do true occupation. Another group has done Wet Wednesdays, which is such a fun title for me. Um, and it's where everybody learns how to bathe themselves, groom themselves, put on their makeup, shade themselves, and it's a day spent in the bathroom actually with people, um, getting them <clears throat> groomed and looking handsome and pretty. 
Um, there's a group um, of several different educators have really used this as a way to get the word out there to have students do uh, in-service based on choosing wisely um, and, and in the field of a packet, sending them to choosing wisely one-off sheet to really make sure field work educators know what we're looking for in terms of field work experience. So there's been a lot of things going on. Um, my favorite one actually was an OT practice. It was a woman, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice. Um, I think she lived in Michigan or Missouri. It was at M State. <laughs> and apparently in the, in the largest Christmas store in the world or in the country. And each, all disciplines or professions have a uh, Christmas ornament that represents them. And our tagline was crackers you know, getting people back to productive selves. But she has received full ornaments in her career from patients and their families that were happy with her services. Unfortunately, optic is a person doing a pegboard. So while the words are right, the optic is completely wrong. I think that's so important because, uh, you know, even in my personal experience that uh, doing my fieldwork experiences that I've seen flyers that go out that say occupational therapy is about fine motor and physical therapy is gross yep. motor. And um, while I, I agree that occupational therapists are uh, less and less having to explain what occupational therapists do, I think that there's still a problem with, uh, you know, what occupational therapy is is the uh, idea that it is occupation-based and about helping people uh, live their lives to the fullest. Um, and I'm happy that you brought up that example because I think that's a big portion of what the Choosing Wisely program uh, is looking to provide. Yeah, especially, like, you know, the first recommendation, which is the one that was um, always, we always called it, rose to the top. You know, the one that the clinicians were most concerned about was, not using, um, stop, stop using non-purposeful activities, you know, pegs, cones, rainbows, um, arm bikes, etc. So the whole field is concerned about that. Mm -hmm. Now, what kind of advice would you give for uh, maybe a student listening to this who is about to embark on their, uh, you know, first FISDES uh, level two, um, and want to wants to kind of educate and bring resources to uh, the therapy staff, but find some resistance, um, what would you recommend that they do? Right. So, um, good question. Because um, you're in a student role still, you can't question what seasoned clinicians are doing, even though it doesn't look like occupation. But what you can do is demonstrate um, through what you choose to do. Nobody is going to judge you for doing occupation. Um, you may bring in some equipment or have patients bring in some equipment because a lot of our clinics aren't even set up for occupation. Um, you know, you can't find occupation-based materials. Um, so I would do, I would say practice what we preach and model for everybody else. Your patients are going to be thankful for it. They're going to be much more engaged. Um, and then you might make a change in terms of the staff. So it's a fine line because you have to just, you have to pass. So you don't want to make yeah. it anyway, right? That's the bottom line. You have to pass it. 
But mm-hmm. once you get your first job, I always tell my students, you, they're interviewing your, you, but you're interviewing them. Ask to spend a half day in the clinic and see what they're doing. Are they, is everybody doing non-purposeful activities or are people doing real occupation-based? Um, if they're not, the question is, do you want to be the change agent going in there? Um, or did you find a clinic that really meets your expectations in terms of what an OT should be doing? Hmm. And I think I want to, maybe this is just uh, from from my personal perspective on, on the Choosing Wisely program and uh, the good that it's doing, um, beyond the quantitative benefit uh, that the program has, has found uh, in both those who have put it through and those that you've given awards to, uh, what has been the receptions from therapists from a qualitative standpoint? And I think I'm basing my question off of uh, a little bit of your experience of kind of taking your your first field work uh, patients out to the out to the beach and uh, getting to go out and do things with them, um, and how rewarding was that for that was for you? Uh, do you find that therapists are finding um, moving and transitioning back to occupation just as rewarding? Fifty fifty. Um, when I present this stuff at AOTA, which has been the last three years. It gets, you know, applause. People really, they're, they're the converted already. I've also had people on public Facebook pages, pages calling me out that I am making a schism in the field. Um, and, you know, you can't win a fight on Facebook. That's just reality. Um, so there are some clinicians that are not embracing it. Most are, though. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's important to note, too, that uh, especially as, as students and as many of the listeners to the podcast are um, students, it, you'll come out into the fields with uh, you know, your education and uh, hopefully uh, a lot of hope for the future and a lot of energy to make changes. Um, but there, there is, is resistance and there are still people who are stuck in their ways. Those people are never going to change. Um, so you know, like when I, I really have pulled back on my uh, speaking engagements. I will always teach a student group, though. Like, you know, I just did one at um, Temple's Pinning Ceremony, and I'm doing another student conclave in Illinois. Because the students are the ones that are going to make the next change in OT, not the dinosaurs that have been out there for 30 years. <laughs> no, seriously. You know, what's, the, what's the thing about an old dog? You know, no new trick. No new tricks. <laughs> no, but it is it is a it is still a hopeful outlook. How have you dealt with um, that Facebook reception, uh, especially because I'm sure that um, you know, as 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 many of our listeners know, uh, not all occupational therapists are members of AOTA or uh, their state associations. Um, and when you have a public forum like Facebook, it kind of allows people to be, um, maybe more critical to put it lightly. Uh, how have you dealt with those kind of critiques? Um, I used to engage them and now I just ignore them because again, there's nothing to do about it. If that's, if they have the time on their hands to attack choosing wisely, (laughs) which is like the most obvious thing you should be doing, mm-hmm. then something's wrong with them. So mm-hmm. they're never, you're never going to win on that. So I just ignore or write a positive comment as opposed to like an engagement in terms of fight. 
I do remind them, though, that the list of choosing wisely was not developed by myself nor AOTA. It was developed by the membership, completely by the membership. And I think that's important to note that then this is not, you know, you from a academic standpoint making a statement about how we should practice, but it's practitioners making a statement about how we should practice. Mm-hmm. You're right. If people wanted to find more information about the Choosing Wisely program, where would they go? Um, so all AOT members, it's a member-protected site, but there's a whole Choosing Wisely webpage that's connected to our evidence-based practice team. Um, and anything that's ever been written about Choosing Wisely, um, our AJOT article, our OT practice articles, there are in-services, there are webinars, um, it's all in one clearinghouse, the AMTA. There's also the Choosing Wisely website itself, which is like 80 organizations that have all of their um, um, recommendations posted. Mm-hmm. And that would be a good uh, good place for for any of those professions to go. And, Anybody, and... yeah. yeah. If you have a back injury, you probably want to hear what you know, the orthopedic surgeons are saying about that. Mm. Uh, now, as far as I'm sure choosing wisely isn't the only thing that you have, uh, only pot that you have boiling. Uh, is there any other exciting research or um, interesting conferences that you have lined up for yourself? Um, stroke rehab is going into, we just submitted the last chapter for the fifth edition. Um, I have been rehired by AOTA to develop um, practice guidelines um, um, and papers related to evidence-based stroke rehabilitation. Mm, and at this time, we're doing it around, we did a random pyramid last time, like motor control, cognition, perception, um, mental health. This time, we're doing it around areas of occupation. Well, congratulations. <laughs> it all sounds very well, exciting. Yeah, yeah there's, you know, there's always more work to be done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess if there's if there's any kind of uh, closing you know piece of advice or information or uh, call to action that you can give, please uh, you know yeah. provide it, um, share it. I think um, students are the future. Um, I do think students can get sucked into the non-occupation based approaches that their supervisors are using, and you have to be true to yourself and true to the True to the profession, um, if that's going to change. Wise words. Well, thank you, Dr. Gillen, for joining us on the My OT Journey podcast. Uh, Before you go, I do have one more personal question. You did say you're an avid reader. What's your favorite book? All the Harry Potter. All series. (laughs) And Murder Mysteries. James Patterson is one of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, fortunately, with James Patterson, you get to keep yourself busy. <laughs> <laughs> I should be saying Proust, but I'm not. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Michael. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney, and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!